This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1. This is The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon, a show about sex, relationships, and everything in between. You can start to feel bliss while you're vacuuming. I don't know if I've tried that or not. Do I want to try it? What is it? Very complex, very interesting. Flogging, whipping, caning. So there I was in my high heels and my little dress. So it is purely a stigma. Healthy sexual expression with other humans. I went to the local women's health centre and went, I think I'm a lesbian, is there a support group? They don't know quite how to talk about it. It's actually a core skill in relationships. That has always worked for me. My guest is Laura, who's a sexologist, and she's currently completing a Master's of Criminal Justice by Research. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Laura, what is a sexologist? Oh, a sexologist. (laughs) In the simplest terms, a sexologist is someone who is involved in the scientific study of human sexuality. When we think about sexuality, there is so much involved. It's such a massive spectrum. There's all these sort of categories that fall within sexology. Myself, I am in forensic sexology, so that's the criminology aspect. Yeah, I am a sexologist too, and I work with couples um, related to any issues people that are having and individuals as well. Okay, Laura is going to test my sexology knowledge with a forensic sexology question. Wish me luck. Do you know what the age of consent is in Australia? Well, I believe it's 16, but it depends on how old each person is. Am I Um, close? (laughs) Almost. It's 16 in all states and territories apart from South Australia and Tasmania where it's 17 years of age. And then if it's with a person in a position of authority, such as a police officer or a nurse or a teacher, it's 18 years of age. There's a lot of discrepancies between states and territories and jurisdictions. But I think the important thing to remember is know what's relevant for yourself in your state. Laura, there's something else I'm curious to ask you about, which is that lots of young people with our smartphones and Instagram and Snapchat and all that, they're sending each other pictures that perhaps they're in a sexy pose or not wearing clothes or even doing something sexual. From young person to young person, I've heard that that's actually a criminal offence. They're still engaged in creating child pornographic material. Can you comment on that? Yeah, it is actually an offence to send or request explicit images or messages via smartphones or other devices. And that applies to 18 years of age, which is Commonwealth law. They use the term using a carrier system to transmit child pornography. Yikes. And I oppose the use of the term child pornography. I agree. I mean, lots of young people are doing this. As a f- I'm sure I would have been doing it if there were smartphones when I was a kid. I'm so glad there wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that must really concern a lot of parents that it's considered in that way rather than yeah. understood 
differently? You know, there's just different intentions around it, obviously. The Office for the E-Safety Commissioner has a lot of really good resources for parents and young people and women. Lots of free resources and information about talking about sexting, image-based abuse, what's okay online, how to talk to young people about pornography. They are curious. They want to look at pornography. And I don't think that saying, no, you can't do that is really the best thing to do. I think harm minimization is important, but not abstinence-based saying, no, you can't look at pornography. Sure, we know that that doesn't work with young people. Tell them they can't do one thing. They're like, oh, that must be interesting then, and off they go. If they want to view pornography, that pornography is fantasy-based. It's not fact-based. It's not real life. It's learning about empathy for each other. It's also teaching about pleasure-based interactions, which I think is something that not all people are quite prepared to talk about with younger people. At any age, sex positivity is the best way to go. That conversation that a reason to have sex is for fun is often left out, isn't it? The focus is often on SDI prevention or reproductive choices rather than reasons people might have sex and positive reasons for that. Because there's no reason why young people can't experience pleasure or intimacy or explore their sexuality. It's important that they're supported in the right way and comprehensive sexual education and sex positivity. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, relationships and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec. I'm a woman. Like, I have needs now. whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and mm. I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been attracted to myself. <laughs> so they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind-blowing. We often, as sexologists, have people coming to see us and say, I'm addicted to pornography. It was proposed for inclusion in the DSM-5. They included gaming addiction as a disorder in the DSM-5. However, there was not enough evidence to support the inclusion of pornography addiction. The World Health Organization, ICD-11, it was 25 years since the previous iteration. They included sexual compulsivity disorder. They specifically state that it should not be used recklessly to diagnose pornography addiction that it's not to stigmatise and pathologise. It's about an 
actual disorder and people need to meet the criteria. There are a lot of people who are the abstinence-based anti-pornography movement who try and say it's in the ICD-11 that you can have sex addiction. That's not what it states. Following the diagnostic criteria is critical for people in sexology. We need to have these ethical standards and guidelines that we don't violate. Yes. It's having that professional line in the sand. You are a scientist, you're backed by your organization, and you work ethically and morally within the law and within science. Yeah, a lot of my clients are really relieved to hear that there's nothing wrong with them and they don't have an addiction, that perhaps there's other things happening in their life where the use of pornography has started to be not as helpful and not just entertainment or a masturbation tool and it might be getting in the way of some things in their relationship that they can then work on but that it's not the porn, it's the bigger picture around that. Yeah, and that's an excellent way to put it. If you say... Yes, you've got pornography addiction, as many people are sort of pushing. It does really stigmatize them and it makes them feel even worse. Yeah. And that guilt, feeling stigmatized, is not helpful. The lack of evidence for its inclusion, as sexologists, our aim is to do good, not harm people, giving them the right information, supporting them as best as we know is really, really important. So, Laura, one of the main reasons that people seek out a sexologist or sex therapist is because they're experiencing some sexual difficulties. What types of things do you think people might approach a sex therapist or sexologist for? Some of the most common ones would be erectile difficulties in males and in females it tends to be sexual pain genitopelvic pain disorder it's shortened to vaginismus that's an older term people who are experiencing pain on sexual intercourse are people who have desire discrepancies one person in the relationship wants to have sex a lot more than the other person and it causing conflict and tension. There's a lot when it comes to sexual difficulties. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, relationships and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec, I'm a woman, like I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids, I look like Bert Newton, I wouldn't have been attracted <laughs> to myself. <laughs> So they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind-blowing. The person who desires less frequent sex feels like there's something wrong with them and they need to ramp it up a bit. I imagine that in days gone by, it might have been the other way, that if you want sex too often, you were 
stigmatised and seen as something wrong with you? I think desire discrepancy is an issue with a lot of couples. You would probably see a lot more of this than, than I would. And anorgasmia in females is another one that is not being able to achieve orgasm. Mm. And it can be situational. Perhaps they've been able to achieve orgasm in the past and for some reason they're not able to anymore. It's working around what it is that's preventing them from reaching orgasm. Yeah. Or it could be that it's lifelong and they've never been able to achieve orgasm. It can get a little bit technical and scientific, but it's always best that they see a doctor first and have blood work done, same as males are having erectile difficulties. Quite often there's underlying health conditions, diabetes, heart problems that could be affecting their sexual function. To have that medical workup first is always a good thing because then it becomes a multidisciplinary treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I guess there's a risk if you just think that it's a relational or emotional issue, that something could be missed that could be quite serious. Especially when it's coming to things like pain. Experiencing pain on sexual intercourse is something that we would really want to avoid. And having a medical professional do some blood work and internal exam if possible because then sometimes they're not even able to have that helium inserted because mm-hmm. of the vaginal spasming. There are methods that can help. It's a process. If they're in a relationship, I think it takes a supportive partner to understand it's something that they can't help and it's very difficult for partners. Having someone that supports them is probably what I would hope to be the most successful method of treatment. A lot of people who experience pain during intercourse, they push through it. You know, they want to connect with their partner. They want to be able to be sexual. They want to give that connection. However, that can make it worse because when they then experience the pain, it gets matched with being intimate and they can start to have an aversion towards any intimacy. And that can be really sad if people then can't find their way back to each other in a way that feels safe. I think couples just sometimes really need that encouragement. They kind of know what might help, but it's all a bit awkward and painful and difficult and they felt rejected or abandoned and just a lot comes with all of that. So then giving them just a little bit of structure a little bit, okay, do this and then do this. It just takes that pressure off approaching or not knowing what to do and then they come back and say, okay, we tried that. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable because I don't think that you always have to have orgasm as a goal of set. You can still experience pleasure in different ways. If orgasm or you know in heterosexual relationships penis and vagina sex isn't seen as the absolute be all and end all then a lot of the Mm -hmm. difficulties then they're not so salient people can explore many other ways to be together in a really pleasurable and satisfying way yeah vaginal orgasm i have never had one however clitoral that has always worked for me I have no problem with that one Hmm. but vaginal no that's a really Um, interesting topic in itself because now we know that the clitoris isn't just that 
tiny little hood. When a person with a clitoris is aroused, the inside is quite a large, would you say, organ? Structure. Structure. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's yeah. and so that maybe vaginal orgasms are actually clitoral orgasms just on the inside. Yeah. The indirect clitoral mm. stimulation. Yes. They may be having vaginal penetration, but it's actually indirectly stimulating the clitoris. The clitoris is a wonderful thing. It's basically designed for pure pleasure. Unfortunately, men, their penis is, they have to urinate through it. They have to get erection. There's a lot of things that they have to do with their penis, whereas our clitoris is there for pleasure. That's its, its main function. I actually have a colleague who's in neuroscience and sexology. They do experiments on rats and the orgasm process and stimulation and it's fascinating work that he does gosh imagine and explaining that at a dinner party what you do yeah <laughs> listen if i was a lab rat i think i'd probably go for that lab rat you know yep. there's a lot of worse things that's that they the could way i would like to go out Please if you had to be oh dear We've talked together previously, Laura, about your concerns that the term sexologist is not regulated by an industry or body, the worry that anyone can actually call themselves a sexologist, regardless of their level of qualifications or accreditations or even experience. These people, in some of their forms, are dangerous. Okay. They are touching people, the yoni massage. Yeah. At some point in time, something is going to go wrong. You know, there's no ethics or really container around there's that. No, we need to regulate our mm. profession, make sure that we're working within the law and that we're opposing things that are harmful, like the anti-porn people, conversion therapy. There's all these negative things that we're having to fight against. These people are claiming to be sexologists. I think as a sexologist, that's not acceptable for me because I believe that we should be based in science, evidence and fact. The word vulva, rather than people used to call the female genitals the vagina, but that's just the inside, right? And there's been a reclamation of that word vulva in recent yeah. years that I've really noticed and like to see out there. The reason that I use the term vulva is due to Kath Mazella. She's a woman from Perth. Decades ago, she had vulva cancer. She went in to have what she thought was being a small lump removed and woke up having all her external genitalia, including her clitoris, removed. Oh, God. She was sent home with no support, no information, and went into a terrible depression. However, she came back from that, and ever since, she has been championing for women's gynecological health. Beaver La Vulva yeah. is Cass' hashtag. She has fought tirelessly to try and change the way that we refer to our genitalia. Oh, what a champion. She's a fireball, and she's really lovely. That's why... I use the term vulva because before I used to use the word vagina and I think a lot of people still do. I think since something that's slowly changing, sort of like calling a man's penis his testicle. Yeah. It's different. Women's genitalia is so secretive and hidden and it's been something that women haven't spoken about. It's a revolution where we are starting to speak about it because it's normal and it's natural. And the more we know, the better we can care for ourselves and our health. 
And I've noticed more and more art depicting realistic genitalia rather than going back to porn again. We see a certain look that isn't really representative of all people with vulvas. After being a nurse in obstetrics and gynecology, I have to say I have never seen two that are the same. Mm. Like Snowflake, they're all unique. Thank you for joining Evolution of Intimacy and, yeah, have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you for having me and, yeah, it was a pleasure. You've been listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon. We're feeling juicy the whole day. Every desire I could possibly think of. What sort of impact would it have? They want it, they're going to go and get it. They don't think of long-term consequences. Oh, did that feel really nice? Oh, yes, that felt really delicious. Being able to feel good about my body again, that's been a huge thing. All anybody really wants in this world is to feel seen and heard. We actually do have a lot that connects us physically. It's making people feel good. There is a real sense of hopefulness that returns in the relationship. A really beautiful thing. Take that beauty and that calmness and that bliss and that sense of peace out into the world. Thank you for listening and I hope we've inspired you with our juicy conversations on this episode of The Evolution of Intimacy. If you would like to go deeper, you can book a session of relationship counselling, sex therapy or individual counselling via my website. I work in person in Cairns, tropical far north Queensland or I can meet you online anywhere in the world. Or you might prefer to go at your own pace with my 12-lesson Relationship and Intimacy online course. To book or to listen to previous episodes, visit my website, ellashannon.com, or follow me on the socials at Evolution of Intimacy. Finally, please go to iTunes and write me a quick review if you're feeling kind. Thank you, lovelies, and see you next time. This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1.